0: It seems to me that in a case like that, where something like that would happen, the the parent, who is a non-offending parent, who's not guilty of anything but some sort of an accident, would have had the child in their arms. They would have been distraught over the child.
1: From the very
2: beginning of this circumstance, that they said something is not right. Five minutes after pulling that child out of the car, he's in the back of the police car complaining that the handcuffs are too tight and it's hot back there.
0: Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades, that at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated, or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed Color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones, and they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best Case, Worst Case listeners get 10% off, plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE.
3: Hello, and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host, Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds, as well as creator of Discovery's Manhunt Unabomber. And today with me, live from Atlanta, is...
0: Hi guys, it's Francie Hakes. How are you, Jim?
3: I'm good. It's good to hear your voice, Francie. Thanks. It's great to have you here.
0: Yeah, it's good to be with you. I'm sorry I'm at a distance, but I'm in Atlanta for a very special reason. We have a couple of very special guests today. I'm live with them in the Cobb County District Attorney's office. We have the elected district attorney, Vic Reynolds, and the deputy chief district attorney, deputy chief assistant district attorney, right? Chuck Boring, who is the head of the Special Victims Unit, so I want to thank them so much for hosting me and agreeing to talk to us on Best Case, Worst Case. How are you all this morning?
1: Fine. Thank you, Francie. Thank you, Jim, for having us. Thank you.
0: So, let's start a little bit with um, with the elected district attorney, Vic Reynolds. Vic and I worked together um, way back in the day when I was an assistant district attorney here in Cobb County, and just for our listeners. Cobb County is one of the Atlanta suburbs, and I prosecuted crimes against children cases here back from about 2000 to 2002. So it's nice to be home.
1: Well, it's good to have you here, Francie. Uh, And we remember you well. Francie was a tough prosecutor, very fair, and a lot of integrity, so
3: it's good to have you back here.
0: Thanks, Vic. Jim?
3: Well, Vic, can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Sure. Um,
1: I have an interesting background. I started out as a police officer. I was a cop and uh, I was a beat cop and made detective after a couple, three years and uh, was in law enforcement for around five years or so before I decided to go to law school. I attended law school in Atlanta, Georgia State. I graduated in the second class uh, in a brand new law school. And from there, I became a prosecutor in Atlanta in, in the Fulton DA's office, which is downtown. Atlanta and left there and came up to Cobb, which is uh, where we're at now. I prosecuted up here for several years and was fortunate enough to be appointed to the bench at a very young age. I was 36 or so and became the chief magistrate judge of Cobb County, where I sat for almost six years running the drug court, handled a lot of crack cases. That was during our crack epidemic. And after about five and a half, six years on the bench, I decided to go out into private practice and started a firm, a you know, small firm, boutique firm, did only criminal defense work. Did a lot of high-profile work and traveled around and tried a ton of cases as a defense lawyer. And really missed public service. And um, the DA's job became open in 2012. I ran for the seat and was blessed enough to win. Uh, took over January 1 of 13 as the Cobb uh, District Attorney, and I'm um, starting just started my second term in January of 17. So.
3: The yeah, problem. that is pretty interesting. Yeah, that is pretty interesting. And Chuck, can you tell us about your professional career? Sure, much uh,
2: less interesting. <laughs> uh, I started out uh, straight out of law school. I went to law school, at Georgia State as well. Graduated in 2000. I started straight out as a prosecutor in the Coweta Judicial Circuit, which is south of the airport, more of a, a rural jurisdiction. Uh, prosecutor there about three and a half years, and then came to COP for my first stint. Uh, I actually joined not long after uh, Francie had left to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office. I was here a couple of years and then went to Atlanta, to Fulton County, uh, downtown Atlanta to prosecute crimes against children and uh, homicide cases for about five years. And then uh, I returned to Cobb County in 2010 uh, to join back with the Special Victims Unit. And I've been here since 2010. And now I I supervise the Special Victims Unit and uh, training for the DA's office here.
3: Great. So I'd like to start with you today, Chuck, and ask you to tell us about your best case or your worst case from your professional career.
2: Well, I think at this point in my professional career, uh, for a myriad of reasons, be it from a philosophical standpoint, practical, legal standpoint, I'd say um, I've got one case that is probably the best and worst case I've ever had to deal with, and that's uh, the state versus Justin Ross Harris.
3: Okay, can you tell us what kind of case that was, Chuck?
2: Uh, this was a homicide case involving the death of a 22-month-old child uh, who was left in a motor vehicle for uh, seven hours on
3: a hot summer day. Oh, geez. That, that is a horrible case.
0: Being raised in Georgia, I can tell you a hot summer day here means a really hot summer day that people, for example, in your current home state of California just can't comprehend. I mean, it's it's hot.
3: I have to tell you though, Francie, I spent the weekend out in Palm Springs and uh, it was 114. So uh, I think there are parts of California that can absolutely connect to that kind of a concept. It's horrible. I can't imagine being in a car for 20 minutes without air conditioning in that kind of a heat. So yeah, I can understand why this could be a horrible case.
0: So, Chuck, you said a 22-month-old child was left in a hot car for seven hours. How did you first hear about the case?
3: Uh, The first we heard about
2: the case, honestly, was from the media that evening. Uh, I saw news reports about a child being left in a car. Um, And the next morning, I went in to talk to uh, one of the deputy chiefs about it and uh, learned some of the details. And at that point, we really didn't know what it was about. And it was later, through the investigation, it became something a lot more than was initially reported.
0: So you said a couple of interesting things there, and one of the things our listeners really like is to get that kind of inside baseball look. You say you spoke—you saw it on the news. Obviously, that means you didn't get a call about it. You spoke with the deputy chief. Did you mean a deputy chief of the police department versus uh, actually, deputy chief here?
2: A uh, deputy chief here who had been in contact with the, uh, the, the police department, and okay. so we discussed it and the fact that it was the, the death of a child, so I was going to be involved and run a point on it.
0: And there are protocols, I remember back in the day, I was a member of the Child Fatality Review Committee and some of the other protocol committees around child death. So there are very specific protocols that have to happen in, in every county when a child dies. What, what, could you explain some of those protocols here?
2: Well, some of the protocols kind of enter office. If it involves the death of a child or a child looks like they may uh, die, they, they contact our office as well, in addition to the Crimes Against Children and Crimes Against Persons division of the police department's. Uh, From that standpoint, we kind of, we stay involved. Uh, The medical examiner gets involved. All the different aspects and disciplines are involved from Department of Family and Children Resources uh, to the medical community. And kind of from the outset are all communicating to make sure we have the full picture.
0: So I guess you can kind of say that the death of a child is a bit of a special circumstance. There are other things that happen that are in addition to what would happen in any normal death of an adult.
2: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, You put it this way, but when there's a gunshot or a knife wound, it's pretty simple as to a cause of death, how the death occurred. Um, When you've got the death of a child, generally, it's going to involve some much more involved medical and law enforcement investigation, some nuances that aren't there in a general homicide.
3: Is it unusual to not have heard initially from the police department? Is it unusual that you got your first inkling about this case from the media?
2: Uh, not really in this case, because they did contact uh, one of the deputy chiefs in charge of a major case at the time. That's Jesse Evans. And he uh, was the point of contact at that time from the Crimes Against Persons unit. So I think they contacted him that night Got and it. in the morning. Great.
0: Well, I would imagine that in a case like this, uh, there are hours and hours worth of investigation that happens before you guys ever even get a call. I mean, the police are are involved immediately and they have a lot to do to try to figure out what happened quickly.
2: That's right. And generally, when we get a call on something like this, we get a, a blanket. This is what we know right now. There is a child who is deceased. We are working on it and they'll update us as they can. But this type of investigation and this one specifically was very, very fluid and evolving as it went. So. What was happening at one hour in the investigation had changed completely two hours later. Really? Yeah. How how was that? Uh, From the initial initial history given by uh, the perpetrator in the case, uh, then finding out other information from him, from other parties, from uh, witnesses on the scene, uh, discovering surveillance video and all kinds of things that happened, a lot of it over the course of the first 24 hours— that really moved this case from what we initially thought it was to what it ended up being.
0: Many of our listeners might recognize this, and it's, it's a terrible name, but the media sort of adopts these names to make it easier to talk about a case so they can distinguish it from other cases. They called this the hot car death case. They may re- remember that or the, or the Cooper Harris case, which is the name of the child. Let's start sort of from the beginning. What was the first kind of story on the scene that police were operating under?
2: Yeah, the first story on the scene that the police were operating under was that the uh, the child, Cooper's dad, uh, the defendant, who ended up being the defendant in this case, uh, had gone to work that day and had forgotten his child and forgot Cooper in their car, in his car, and that after going to work that day, he left and was driving uh, to a movie and at some point during that drive realized that he left the child in the car that entire day and had done so accidentally that he had... Uh, pulled over into a crowded uh, business area, pulled the child out. Uh, at that point, the child was, had been dead for a while.
3: And why did he actually have the child with him that day? Uh, is there a mother involved in this situation?
2: Uh, yes, there's a mother involved. The defendant actually worked uh, at an area very close to the daycare, which was daycare was through his employer. And so he was the uh, main person to take the child to, day, to daycare, uh, in the morning. He took the child the majority of the time on the way to work and would drop the child off at daycare.
3: So he, was he also the one that always picked up the child after work? Um, it alternated. It uh, he, he picked up, picked the child up about half the time. His
2: wife picked up the child about half the time, but the majority of the time he was the one to drop the child off.
3: Okay. So would it have been plausible then that he had dropped the child off in the morning, and this wasn't his day to pick up the child.
2: I think that the the, the that could have been plausible as far as picking the child up, but as far as uh, what can, when we got into the dynamics of whether somebody could forget the child under these type of specific circumstances, uh, the fact that he drops the child off almost a, as a majority of the time. Uh, was one of the factors we looked at as far as the likelihood that he actually did forget versus he knew the child was in the car.
3: Got it.
0: Well, and this is, unfortunately, this is, these kinds of um, incidents, tragic incidents, uh, happen uh, around the South and other places actually in the country, but mostly in the South, in the summer. It seems like every single summer we hear about a child being left in a a hot car and, and dying. And Vic, I want to bring you into this. You're the elected DA, so you're in charge. You're the boss. When was the first time you heard about this case?
1: That uh, particular day, uh, I believe, in in fact, it was a Tuesday, if my memory's correct. Uh, We were looped in sometime late afternoon, evening hours, uh, when the on-scene detectives reached out to the head of the major case unit in this office. And I advise them that there was a death of a child they were investigating. I was immediately looped in or brought in uh, based on information supplied to me by that particular deputy chief. And, and as Chuck said a moment ago, it's a very fluid investigation. Uh, we have to remember our job as prosecutors uh, is not to investigate. We, we allow law enforcement to do that, and then they bring that investigation to us, or they advise us along uh, the process uh So we'll know what's going on. But so our job is to let them do their job, do their investigation. But but we were looped in and brought in probably sometime late uh, evening uh, of, of that particular day, June 18th.
0: And what's your role? So you're the I mean, obviously, you're the boss. But I think for people who've never worked in the DA's office, they don't really know how cases get assigned, how decisions get made. Uh, obviously, the day of the child's death was not the day necessarily that you assigned the case, but what are you thinking at the time you hear that there's a child death and you may have to become involved?
1: Well, you know, you certainly, um, it, it's very troubling, very disconcerting, you know, when a 22-month-old child has lost his life based on the fact he's been left in a vehicle. Uh, we began learning information that that vehicle was, was being operated by his by his biological father, that that father was supposed to drop the child off that morning. And so as the as the case goes on, uh, particularly the first 12, 14, 16 hours, a lot of information is being thrown at us about what's going on with the case. So my role initially, as I said a moment ago, is to let that investigation work its way through the process to make sure that that uh, as much as we can uh, law enforcement is doing what they're supposed to do uh, in a correct fashion. You know we're very fortunate in this county, you know we have about 750,000 people in this county, so it's a large county. We have a very uh, active, uh, progressive uh, police department. This particular department, this particular unit is crimes against persons, so these are the most experienced detectives who are on scene uh, they they have their best crime scene folks out there. So we're letting them work. And at that point, my role is really just to let the investigation run its course. I'm not in a process or in a position yet where the elected DA I'm having to make any decisions about the case.
0: Great. And so Chuck, at the at this point, you know, the first twelve hours you all hear that evening, so the child has and now been dead for some hours. Uh, you hear about the case from the media. I assume at some point you talked to Jesse Evans, who's the head of Crimes Against Persons, he's here in the DA's office, and then what happens next?
2: Uh, from that point, I just began a lines of communication with the lead detective, Detective Bill Stoddard, in the case, and got updates from him going forward as far as what was going on uh, and any questions he had or concerns he had. He would run them by us if we had any advice or anything of that nature, uh, basically just keeping us up to date as to what was going on. Uh, and he let us know very early on that there was something different about this case.
0: And so, tell us about that. What what did he think, Phil? And I know Phil Stodder, very experienced detective. What did he think made this case different from you know what many people would assume was a tragic accident?
2: Well, even initially, this was uh, as you know, I've I've actually handled cases like this before where we've had this type of scenario. In this case, at a bare minimum, he. He was in his investigation had uh, turned up evidence that this was at a minimum some type of negligent homicide and that some of the other evidence they turned up was beginning to point them toward the possibility that this was done intentionally.
3: And what kind of indications were they that it looked like it was a homicide in the first place, a negligent homicide?
2: Well, you, you looked at some of the, the, the factors that the defendant was uh, it had forgotten the child for that length of time. There were numerous uh, triggers that would have happened for this uh, defendant to have actually uh, sparked that memory that the child was in the car. Uh, the... Lack of uh, the the distance between the location where he was to have left, where he took the child to breakfast at Chick-fil-A and the workplace was about 0.6 miles, so it was just a few minute drive. Uh, And then also evidence started to to be located as far as um, what the defendant was doing that day and had been doing in the hours leading up to leaving this child in the car. Uh, As far as uh, being involved with numerous other women and other things that arguably at a minimum would have preoccupied him, but what we found later to discovered uh, pointed toward uh, an intentional homicide.
3: So why don't you take us through what the uh, father's statement was the first time? Like, what did he say in the beginning when the investigation first opened?
2: And yeah, well, this is all in, you know, uh, in the new age, th- uh, this entire trial is on YouTube now. So Obviously, (laughs) it's all public record. Um, What the evidence came out that the defendant's first statement was, the history he gave, was that he took his son to breakfast. Um, He turned out of that Chick-fil-A, made a U-turn on Cumberland Boulevard, and when he did, uh, within it would have been a matter of probably less than a minute. Sometime in that time frame, he decided to go straight to work instead of taking the left to go to drop the child off at daycare, and that he went to work and just got out of the car and— forgot the child was in there until he drove home or drove to the movies later that day.
0: And how long was that period of time between the time he got to work and the time he went back to his car to leave mm-hmm. for the day?
2: He, he, he parked the car, and we've got, luckily, we we're able to find video surveillance showing him parking the car. Uh, it was a, between 9.24, 9.25 a.m. when he parked the car at his workplace, and it was a little after 4.15 p.m. when he got back in the car The first 911 call was uh, 422,
0: 423 p.m. What kind of car, I mean, I have a ton of questions that I know came out at the trial, which Mm -hmm. I followed quite closely, but what kind of car was it? It seems a little odd that someone would forget their child, but it maybe depends on the kind of car Mm -hmm. it is and how far away from the driver they are.
2: Uh, It was a Hyundai Tucson, which people called an SUV. However, if anybody's seen one of these, it is a very, very small SUV, so that was one of the things immediately that the the police noticed was the fact that this car seat, which was rear-facing, was basically in between the passenger and driver's seat and would have been just inches and visible to the driver of that car.
3: And did that car seat normally stay in the car or did he take the baby out in the car seat and then put the car seat and the baby back into the car? Uh, Cooper being 22 months old at that time could walk, talk, you know,
2: everything that a normal 22 month old could do. At that point, the car seat stayed in there uh, as the child was almost uh, two years old. So he would get the child out of the car uh, without removing the car seats. The car seat stayed in there. Um, they had switched car seats back and forth a little a few weeks before this. But otherwise, the car seat had been in that car and used in that car for the majority of that child's
3: life. Okay. And was his uh, excuse that he saw the car seat and didn't know the child was in it when he got out of the car?
2: Uh, his story was that he he did not state anything about even noticing the car seat or anything of that nature. He said he just parked the car, got his bag, and went into work.
0: And at some point, obviously, you've got police on the scene, there are witnesses there where he, you say, he pulled over, I assume, into some parking lot or some shopping center along his route home, so there's eyewitnesses to his behavior and getting the child out of the car, as you described earlier. What, what did you learn during the course of the investigation was his behavior when he pulled over at the end of the day and pulled the child out of the car?
2: That, that was another red flag that detectives uh, learned of and began to investigate, talking with a lot of the witnesses on scene. Uh, several of them noted the strange demeanor of the defendant at the scene. Uh, detectives noted the inconsistent behavior of the defendant, somebody who had just discovered that they were responsible for the death of their child after leaving him in the car for seven hours. Uh, a child that I can tell you from the uh, autopsy photos is in a terrible, terrible state uh, just looking at the child, looking at little Cooper. Um The witnesses on scene described the defendant, and we actually have patrol video of some of this, him yelling intermittently, oh God, oh God, what have I done? And then going through instances of just calm demeanor, rubbing his hands through his hair, appearing to be on the phone, and markedly, the uh, seconds after pulling the child out of the car with the assistance of a bystander, the defendant separated himself from the child, walked away from the car, and... uh, basically let the child there for other people unrelated to this child to deal with the child and try to resuscitate him.
0: So he didn't sit there over the child holding his hand, crying, picking up, the, holding the child. I mean, it seems to me that in a case like that where something like that would happen, the the parent who is a mm-hmm. non-offending parent who's not guilty of anything but some sort of an accident would have had the child in their arms. They would have been distraught over the child.
2: And that was, that was one of the factors that witnesses described is that within... He attempted, as one of the witnesses said, to attempt to try to do some type of CPR briefly, stood up, and walked away from the child.
0: Wow. And so, Vic, at what point did it become clear in the investigation uh, to you all, even if those uh, if that information wasn't made public, did it become clear to you all that charges were going to be brought?
1: It wasn't uh Terribly long after the initial investigation ensued, the next day or so. In fact, ironically, I remember exactly where I was. I was speaking at a at a speaking engagement in northeast section of the county, and uh, was in constant uh, communication w- with our folks and with the detectives, and and uh, w- was advised that uh, warrants were going to be secured that particular day, and then uh, the process started. Um, uh, the criminal process started then as he was arrested and charged with the offense of, uh, of hurting his job.
0: And that's one of the differences between the state and the federal system that was something that I had to get used to when I changed jobs. And that is the warrant process, which I think maybe a lot of people, our listeners may not know, is that at at least here in Georgia in the state system, the police take the warrants. The assistant DA doesn't have to sign off on that, the police go and see a judge and get a warrant themselves, as opposed to the federal system, where federal agents are not allowed to get warrants. They have to go through an assistant U.S. attorney, and there's a lot of uh, collaboration in the process. Obviously there was a lot of collaboration early in this investigation, but do you recall how long after the day the child died that it was that the police made the conclusion that the uh, that charges should be filed against the father?
2: think that the—well, uh, yeah, I, I know that the detectives— This is a question
0: for Chuck, by the way.
2: The detectives, uh, after speaking with the defendant, I think they—even they, before they interviewed him, they knew there was a possibility they were going to be arresting him or some type of uh, at least minimally negligent cruelty to children. Uh, after speaking with the defendant, interviewing him and discussing it amongst themselves, uh, they decided to charge him with homicide based on the cruelty.
0: And was that— And was that the same day?
2: That was the, yes, the same day. That late, I think late that night.
3: Can we go back for a second and talk a little bit about the behavior of the father? Uh, First of all, what's his name? Uh, Justin Ross Harris. Okay. And so Justin Harris, he went to the movie after work. Why would he go to the movies without his wife?
2: He was uh, had agreed to meet up with some of his buddies who work for the same company, but at a different location. They were going to meet at the movies. Uh, that was just something they were going to do that day that they had talked about the day um, they had discussed it off and on the day before, but then solidified those plans that morning.
3: Okay. So there's one aspect of this that behaviorally really stands out to me, and that is, that he has a bystander help him remove the child from the car i'm sure that over the course of that child's almost two years of life that he got that child out of that car what hundreds of times by himself why did he need a bystander to help him get the child out of the car that that's a great question
2: um uh, I can know that the, the bystander came up to him as, as he heard him yell out, what have I done? What have I done? And the bystander stated that it looked like he was trying to get him out of the car seat, but appeared to be, quote, messing around. Uh, and so the bystander helped him get the child out, lift him up, and then uh, the
3: child was placed on the pavement. Uh, yeah, that's that's also another, another great indicator there, um, placed on the pavement as opposed to being held by the father or placed on a sidewalk, the grass, a bench, something that probably was available. What was the location like?
2: Well, there was, I mean, it was a parking lot of a, a busy business area with restaurants, things of that nature. Um yet there was a, a grassy area right uh, right near there with a the sidewalk and uh, eating establishment. So.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we notice behaviorally in the behavioral analysis unit where I worked for a number of years while I was in the FBI that many times when there are false allegation crimes that the offender will attempt to bring in a an outside party to help with the, quote, discovery of the body or the criminal situation that they're alleging and this seems to be very consistent with that. What do you think about that, Vic?
1: Well, it's certainly something that caught uh, not only our eye, but the detectives. I think as Chuck mentioned a moment ago, one of the things that really resonated with me uh, when this case initially began was the fact that these detectives, and, and as I said earlier, these are very experienced law enforcement guys. They've worked homicide scenes for a number of years, from the very beginning of this circumstance, that they said something is not right. Mm-hmm. They just knew it. they knew it, and and of course, of course, we all know that that is not uh, doesn't meet an evidentiary standard, but but it certainly raises flags with these guys, where where they said you know when we got there, when we got there on that scene and began conversing, we just knew something was not as it should be in this scenario, and so. All of these factors began playing, and, and as, as we'll reveal, I'm sure, later in the investigation or later in the interview, even more and more and more began coming out during the course of this investigation. So we realized pretty quickly that we, in fact, had a criminal situation on our hands.
0: Well, and before we get into more detail of the investigation itself and its sort of impact on on you all and the law enforcement professionals working it, Vic, I'm curious about sort of the public aspect. I mean, I was in Atlanta then, and very quickly there were media reports of this happening, as there commonly are when when a child dies in an unexpected or unusual way. And so there are media reports coming in, and it's the narrative of the media is, oh, what a tragedy. This man forgot his child in the car. So almost the or the day it's happening and, and warrants are being taken he's going to be arrested the public's perception at least driven by the media is the man the Ross Harris is a is a victim you know it was a terrible tragic accident so how does that play into your decision making and did you hear from the public
1: y- yes we, <laughs> we we certainly heard from the public and I, I don't mean that in a flippant sense you know as an elected Uh, individual, I I listen to what the public says, I'm I'm aware of it, and and I want want to be uh, knowledgeable about what what their feelings are. But but I had promised myself when I took this job, and and I've tried to surround myself with really good prosecutors, and I promised myself that when we made a decision on a case, we we make it based on two things, the facts and the law. We don't make, make it on emotion, we don't make it on passion. Uh, and we don't certainly don't make it on on the narrative that the media is portraying. But I will tell you that the the first couple of weeks of this case was tough. It was tough uh, on me emotionally. It was tough on me as as a husband and a father. Uh, some of the things that were being said in blogs and and on uh, and, and on media outlets. But again, that that that's okay. That comes with the territory and. Uh, but, but yeah, initially, uh, at the outset, uh, the majority of folks, at least the ones we heard from, were, were adamantly opposed to charges being filed. Uh, and the narrative the media was driving then was that this was, in fact, an accident.
3: So, Vic, when you say that about how difficult it was and, and what was going on, um, is that because the prosecutor's office doesn't engage in a PR campaign during these initial weeks and months of an investigation that's part of it uh, uh, Jim and, and, and in fact you know
1: ethically our standards the bar uh, canons prohibit us from from what we call extrajudicial comments or statements on, on pending criminal matters that haven't been disposed of and so we have to be extremely careful and the reason we do that, is is, is, uh, is, is, uh, is several, one, one of which is we want to protect the due process rights of that very individual who's being charged. That's kind of ironic. You know, here we are charging somebody. The people and the, the general public perception is he shouldn't be charged. And so to protect him, we keep our mouth shut. Uh, but, but that's, again, it comes with the territory of this particular job. The second reason is what we don't want to do is we don't want to broadcast things out in public that will eventually affect a potential jury pool in the event the case is going to be tried. I've had the fortune, I won't say good or bad, but I've had the fortune of trying high-profile cases before. In fact, I had tried a couple, uh, including one that was a death penalty case, that, that at, in the middle of it, I thought to myself, Vic, you'll never be involved in a case with this much media attention again, and lo and behold, the Harris case comes along. and so. So yeah, you, you, it's tough that that we can't speak, but 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 you know, in the end, we're abiding by by a piece of paper that we call the Constitution, and and that dictates what we do, and we do our best to do it day in and day out. And as I've told my staff countless times, if we'll do that on a burglary charge, we'll do it on a murder charge, and so we do it on the small ones and the big ones too. But but this one tested us; uh, it really did, because there were a lot of things being reported. A lot of things being said, a lot of public perception, which we just knew categorically was wrong. But we uh, we waited. The only statement we made was we would wait until we stepped in a court of law and we produced evidence. And at that time, we would we would see what the perception would be.
3: Yeah, I know. I had that same experience when I was in the FBI and that we would have information that clearly refuted what was being stated in the news or in public social networking or in public meetings. And yet we did not speak out about it. And it gives the public a very wrong, erroneous perception of what your agency is doing. And it's difficult. It's part of how these cases affect us, right? Because we can't actually step up and say, wait a minute, you're wrong. This is actually what happened because we're trying to do the right thing yeah that's that's true jim and, and i I want to tell
1: you this too tell you listeners uh, that one of the most interesting thing about this case is one of the things that I remember is one of the reasons I waited to get back into public service. I'd wanted to do it earlier but i but I waited because I wanted my both of my daughters to be grown and and not to not not to be subjected or at least be old enough to handle to some of the things you're subjected to sometimes when you run for elected office but in this circumstance, my oldest daughter had graduated from college. My youngest was still in college when, when this broke, and I remember telling both of them, even though they were d- grown, I, I told both of them, "Do do not read these blogs. Do not read these media reports and what people are saying." And uh, and and it got to that point. So it was a little it was a little tough, but but we we, we made it through.
0: I was just going to say that sounds to me that 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 is. One of the most difficult things about handling a high-profile case is it is high-profile, so there's a lot of scrutiny, and yet you're, well, not so much your hands are tied, but you, you, have to, you, know, you have to put tape over your mouth. You can't say what you want to say. You know it's righteous. You know the evidence that you have. You've talked to the police. You trust your detectives, but public opinion is against you, but you still have to dig in because that's your job. That's the oath that you swore to do justice.
1: Yeah, that's that's absolutely mm-hmm. true. And you know, th- this was a great example of. I remember my wife uh, not teasing me somewhat, but I remember she her telling me that, you know, Vic, this is that opportunity where you where you not only talk the talk, you walk the walk. You know, you've said, you know, you're going to do what's right as as a district attorney. You, your office will do what is right, and you'll do it regardless of what the the public perception may be, regardless of what the media reports may be. If you believe it's the facts and the law uh, dictate doing what you're doing, then at the end of the day, you can lay your head on the pillow, you can sleep at night. And and, and, and I don't mean to be melodramatic or anything of that nature, but we felt extremely confident in what the evidence was in this case. And eventually we knew we would have the opportunity to step in court and produce the evidence that we had.
3: Well, that sounds like a great segue into the second part of how the justice system kicks in when a child is killed, and that is the criminal court proceedings. So why don't we talk about what PrEP was like for you in getting ready for this trial in court?
0: Yeah, let's start with you, Chuck. I mean, obviously this was now your case. You're the lead ADA on the case. It's your responsibility to seek justice for Cooper. We've talked a little bit about some of the evidence. Let's talk a little bit more about how you prepared for this. One of the things that I find very uh, interesting is in reading media reports, the child's mother was not, did not believe that her husband had intentionally left the child in the car. So I assume she was not a friendly witness. So how did you all deal with what was an unusual turn of events with respect to victim's family?
2: It was uh, difficult. The uh, the defendant's uh, wife, the, the child's mother, the day after the incident had also uh, basically told the police who tried to follow up with her that she was being represented by uh, attorney as well. And so we weren't able to communicate with her to ask follow-up questions, which made it difficult. Um, but as we were discovering what she and what the defendant had told us in their interviews, um, what type of life they led, we found out a lot about the defendant's this other life he was leading that I don't think she had much of a clue about either. So it made it very difficult. Um, it may, At every stage, it made it difficult. Uh,
0: well, she and tra- testified on her husband's behalf at the trial, right?
2: That's correct. Yes. That,
0: that, that's a terrible signal to the jury and to the public about your case and its strength, really, right?
2: It, it does. Unfortunately, in a lot of the child murder cases that I've handled, um, you have a non-offending caregiver who supports the offender. I can't answer what the psychology is definitely for each person behind that. Sometimes it's wanting to rationalize. Sometimes it's wanting to not believe that that person is capable of it. As you know, Francis, with domestic violence cases, a lot of times you know the, the offender is the only support for the non-offending caregiver. So it is difficult, and it posed a lot of problems in this case. How do you address a witness like this who may be sympathetic but who obviously is antagonistic toward the state in this case, and no matter what you show her, she's not going to believe that this defendant committed this atrocious act. So yeah, that was that was very difficult because additionally, she was not aware of the evidence that we had, a lot of it. Um, not only from the demeanor of the scene, we had patrol video, the, the defendant being taken to uh, police headquarters. He had complained about being hot in the car, oh, police car. Oh, are you serious? Five minutes after pulling that child out of the car, he's in the back of the police car complaining that, His handcuffs are too tight, and it's hot back there. Um, His demeanor had transitioned to uh, being very calm in the recordings, and then within 12, 15, 18 minutes later, he screams out while he's looking back at the scene for a few minutes, and then he goes back and turns and faces away from the scene toward the camera, and he's just hanging out uh, to even trying to engage the, the officer on the ride to the police department, asking her how long she's been in law enforcement, chatting this female officer up, you know, within an hour of his child dying. So his wife, the other witnesses, some of those witnesses that were supporting him weren't privy to this information. Um, And that makes it difficult, too, because we can't speak with these people and we can't address the media uh, during this time to, you know, for lack of a better term, correct the record.
0: Well, and how does that impact you, Chuck? I mean, I've I've tried child homicide, and there is really nothing as horrible as having to review the autopsy photos um, of just this tiny little precious person. And it stays with you. We've talked about that before. You don't forget it. The images never, it's kind of like child pornography. The images never leave your mind. I'll never forget the little boy whose case I prosecuted, whose mother's boyfriend was the one who killed him. And unlike in your case, when this child autopsy photos in the beginning is just lying there on a steel table, In this case, the child had a terribly fractured skull, but otherwise looked like he was just sleeping. And those are the images that actually stay with me. It's not the gruesome ones where they're actually doing the autopsy. itself. It's the angelic image of the child, but knowing that child will never breathe again. Tell me how that you've tried tried more than one of these kinds of cases. How does that impact you? How do you deal with that?
2: Yeah, and unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, I guess, I've had tried a number of child homicide cases, both here and in Atlanta, um, and I've seen the spectrum of different types of causes of death and the different types of evil that people will inflict upon children. Um, I think to some degree you have to have the ability to compartmentalize. Um, What keeps me going, and these images don't leave your head, I mean, that's just part of it, but knowing that you know, if I'm not doing it, it may be somebody who hasn't had the training doing these type of cases. You know, it's a lot easier for me. I, ha- I feel a lot. I like to drive and I like being in control. And I think a lot of prosecutors are like that to a degree. So, yeah, not you at all, Francie. Um, but it, it it that helps me go to the next one that I know that I'm doing good, that my kids are going to be proud of what I'm doing and that I'm confident and had having had the training and experience doing this, that... Somebody needs to stick up for these kids because they don't have anybody else to at this point to speak for them.
0: Chuck, you're so right that these kids don't have anyone else to speak for them. And I so appreciate you and Vic inviting me here, having this interview, talking about behind police lines insight into the Cooper Harris case. Jim and I are really looking forward to talking to you about the trial itself and more insider insight on how trials work and how they impact you as justice professionals. I want to thank you again for joining us. Can't wait to hear the rest of your interview. Jim, thanks again from California. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. You can subscribe to Best Case, Worst Case on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, or your favorite listening app.
3: Best case worst case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios LA. Engineered and edited by Terrell Parham. Music by Simba Sumba, and hosted by Wondery.